Welcome to another episode of the Urban Futures Podcast. This is Anna Jones. Today, we have the pleasure to speak with Benjamin Thompson from the University of Sydney. He is joining us today to talk about his research on financing mechanisms for environmental management, including payments for ecosystem services, PES, and how they can be deployed in urban areas. Benjamin, welcome and thank you for joining the podcast. Hi, Anna. Thank you. Yes, thanks for the invite. Let's talk about you and your journey and how do you become involved in working with ecosystem services? Yeah, hi everyone. So I'm Benjamin Thompson. I'm a postdoc at the University of Sydney. Although much of the work I'll be discussing today was conducted while I was at the National University of Singapore. Um, And some of it was conducted with my collaborator, uh, Dr. Dan Richards, who's based at ETH Zurich. So this has been an interest of mine for the best part of a decade. I'm interested in how we can generate sustainable financing for environmental management. And um, a lot of the work I'll be discussing today was really a marriage of of my expertise in PES and uh, Dan Richards' expertise in urban ecology. And that is what has led us to the publication that you mentioned and to today's discussion. So for those who are not familiar with the term, what are PES payment for ecosystem services and why are they important? Sure. So payments for ecosystem services is an environmental management approach in which the people who benefit from uh, or use ecosystem services compensate or reward uh, the people that provide them. So these providers could be land managers that change their management practices, uh, for example, by conserving or rehabilitating an ecosystem instead of converting it. And the beneficiaries or the people that use the ecosystem services could be a corporation um, that uses these services as production inputs. So, for example, uh, a famous type, a famous example of a payments for ecosystem services scheme comes from France, where the mineral water company Vitel uh, pays upland farmers something like 200 euros per hectare per year to avoid using agrochemicals that could jeopardize the purity of the mineral water that goes into their bottles. So that's an example of how these schemes um, can work. And I think PES is important um, irrespective of whether it's implemented in rural or urban settings, um, because it is a way to secure additional streams of finance uh, for environmental management. So if we think about the urban context, um, city councils, uh, you know, sometimes only have certain amounts of money that they can allocate to the creation and maintenance of green space. Uh, And then, of course, some urban greening projects may be financed by one-off grants which typically expire after three or four or five years, um, at which point the project and the maintenance of that project, the green space, uh, ceases. So PES is a way to finance environmental management over much longer time horizons, and it's also conditional. So these payments from uh, from the beneficiaries to the providers are conditional on the beneficiaries seeing actual improvements, measurable, quantifiable improvements in ecosystem service um, delivery. Um, and it is important for me to mention upfront that 
Um, to date, most of the discourse around payments for ecosystem services and most of the projects have been implemented in rural settings. Um, but, you know, we've now started to conceptualise how this could operate um, in cities. So perhaps I'll say a little bit about the types of urban ecosystem services which we, which we find in cities. These can obviously be generated by, you know, parks, urban forests, cemeteries, uh, residential gardens, street trees, green roofs, vertical gardens, all of these different green infrastructures. And some of the specific services might include microclimate regulation, um, provided by vegetation to mitigate the urban heat island effect. It could include um, stormwater management because, of course, green services um, allow more infiltration than concrete surfaces, for example. Vegetation also can improve air quality in inner city areas and can also generate physical health benefits related to providing recreational opportunities and mental health benefits related to um, the aesthetic appeal that seeing trees and vegetation and biodiversity uh, can have in, in these so-called concrete jungles. Um, and of course, finally, you know, urban vegetation can provide a habitat for urban fauna, so species of birds and small mammals, uh, for example. So, yeah, I think um, the approach is a way to finance the, um, the maintenance and the creation of new urban green spaces, um, specifically to target some of these ecosystem services which accrue to humankind. Let's talk about key differences between deploying payment for ecosystem services in rural areas versus urban. You have mentioned how PES have really only been deployed in Sydney or Australia in rural settings. Uh, when we think about urban cores, uh, of course, it's different. You have high density and perhaps less space, less green space to play with. What do you think are the key differences between uh, deploying PES in urban areas versus rural? Sure. Um, I think I think there are you know important differences uh, to mention first. I mean, I think the synergies come in the form of the way that these schemes are put together. So whether it's a rural or an urban setting, there's always going to be someone that manages the land in a different way to provide or maintain ecosystem service provision. And there's always going to be someone that, that benefits from that provision. And of course, historically, they may have benefited uh, for free rather than sort of uh, paying for those services. Uh, but I think some important differences are that, of course, um, land prices are typically higher, almost certainly higher, in urban areas. Um, and this creates quite a problem because in rural areas where we think of, for example, agricultural systems, um, the payments that are, that, are, that are made need to really compensate for the provider's opportunity costs. So these are the profits that they could make from, you know, farming the land instead of keeping the trees standing. And these opportunity costs, when we think of things like real estate in urban cores, are obviously going to be um, prohibitive. But um, what we sort of uh, discuss in, in the research paper is that 
PES in urban areas could be a way to um, provide additional financing for new building projects or to retrofit existing urban infrastructure. So for example, um, you know, it could be the difference between a green roof appearing on a building or not appearing on, on a building. Um, it could mean we have a permeable surface, you know, adjacent to roadsides, um, or, or we don't have that permeable surface, um, depending on who is willing to pay. So I think the higher land prices you know, initially seem cost prohibitive, but when we think of the specific actions and the specific services, um, I think it is potentially um, you know, as feasible as identifying specific actions and services in rural settings. Um, another difference is that in urban areas there is typically greater fragmentation of land ownership. Um, so in the rural environment, of course, farmers and um, communities may have ownership rights over large swathes of land, hectares and hectares and hectares. But in the urban area, you might find, you know, 10, 50 people who each have a small parcel of land within a given, you know, hectare of, you know, the metropolitan area. So, again, this, this can create challenges for PES in the urban context. Um, but, you know, we think that one way to get around this would be to encourage or, or leverage upon um encourage alliances uh, between prospective groups of buyers, uh, providers um, and beneficiaries, um, you know, making use of existing informal institutions such as horticulture societies or neighbourhood associations. And this is important because it can reduce the transaction costs associated with designing and implementing these schemes because you can speak to sort of a figurehead within one of these um, alliances or, or you know, informal institutions um, rather than having to go around to each individual private property owner um, separately so that can save a lot of time and labor in sort of you know, orchestrating these schemes and finally um, there are higher densities of people in urban areas compared to rural areas typically um, but this could actually be advantageous for urban PES because it also means that there is a potentially broader variety and number of prospective beneficiaries and providers um, who, who may be able to um, state their preferences and uh, be motivated to take part in some of these schemes. You know, so to summarize, the key differences are you know, higher land prices, uh, greater fragmentation of land ownership, and higher densities of people um, but I hope I've outlined there uh, ways to sort of overcome these um, at which point that the, the mechanics of the PES scheme would would really operate quite similarly to how they have been implemented in rural uh, settings. Let's talk a little bit more about the architecture of PES and the terminology. When we have this shift in the narrative and we look at the green ecosystem functions from the perspective of a service. What do you think are the implications? And how can we even begin to quantify the value of these ecosystems? 
many people who live in cities will not be able to pay for the upkeep of green areas. So when you hear the term payments for ecosystem services, then uh, you start to think that, okay, what will happen with uh, uh, these people who are not able to pay? Will we privatizing a part of a public space that should remain accessible? Yeah, it's an important point, and it's um, it's, it's a discussion which has, has run and run in the in the ecosystem services literature. You know, um, at what point does an, an ecosystem function uh, become become a service to to humankind? Because you know that's really the key point. Ecosystem services is an anthropocentric construct. Um, you know, the focus is is entirely on. On the benefits that that nature is providing to um, to ourselves to, to humankind, um, I mean, I think in terms of do we need you know new terminology? I mean, I I, I am sort of conscious that there are even more um, similar terms to to you know ecosystem services. You know, we have environmental services. A group of scholars have, have proposed um, another term which I think is um, nature's benefits to people and all these very similar um, similar terms but in the context of payments for ecosystem services I mean I think it is important that that, that, that that terminology is there because we're really talking about a transaction taking place we're talking about a payment which is made in exchange for in theory at least, the delivery of, of an ecosystem service. Now, of course, how that service is quantified and the levels of uncertainty in how those and in how different services are quantified, um, you know, varies. If we think about the climate mitigation service, climate change mitigation service provided by vegetation, which takes in sequesters CO2 from the atmosphere, you know that that ecosystem service is quite easy to quantify. You know, it's 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 pretty straightforward to um, measure a tree and calculate how much carbon is in that tree. But when we think of some of the other services that uh, you know that tree might provide, for example, its aesthetic beauty, um, which certain citizens might find attractive and might. Um, you know, essentially like increased value in the form of rental prices and, and, you know, property prices, that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's that's much more difficult, um, much more difficult to calculate. So moving on to your, your second point about, uh, you know, equality. Uh, yeah, you make an excellent point that ecosystems don't just provide services they also provide disservices um, for example you know pollen which is you know given off by by urban vegetation could be a disservice to to humans that suffer from hay fever for example um, street trees you know look great in places like la rambla in barcelona but um, street trees are, are firstly quite quite expensive to install but they're even more expensive to maintain over decadal time frames because their roots will will damage pipes and they may cause damage to pavements this may lead to 
road closures and inconvenience for 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 human society. Um, some people may not want trees to um, to provide shade, for example. Um, and when we think about vertical gardens on some of these, you know, uh, sustainable buildings, maybe that could be a disservice in that it obscures people's people's view out from those those apartments and units so you know the the, the point about equity is rife in again in the ecosystem services literature whether it's in rural or whether it's in urban settings um, and it is important to be aware that you know like like you like you alluded to there um, you know people's accessibility to green uh, green space in, in cities is, is certainly not equal. You know, plenty of studies have shown that there are major um, inequalities, um, you know, typically, you know, very pretty manicured parks but will be in more affluent areas, whereas in, you know, less affluent areas, you know, they may they may be quite far from any kind of, of green space altogether if we think about some of the inner city areas in the UK, for example. Um, so it is important that when we talk about designing PES schemes that, you know, we include, we incorporate um, the viewpoints and the preferences of you know, a wide variety of stakeholders, um, you know, to ensure that there is procedural equity there and to, you know, ensure that there are mechanisms in place so that PES doesn't just become something for the rich um, we need to find more philanthropic ways um, where PES can be financed to also benefit um, the poor and we do touch on that um, a little bit in in the paper yep Ben talking about green buildings when we were preparing the podcast you mentioned to me that you lived in the one central park uh, award-winning green building in the center of Sydney from the street view, these buildings give you the impression of being a type of vertical forest. I think it would be interesting to hear your uh, perspective, uh, since you live in the building, as to what exactly is the ecosystem service value that a building like this could provide. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, One Central Park is um, sort of suppose the flagship sustainable building uh, in Sydney um, it has these vertical gardens which we're seeing on you know um, you know other buildings like the Bosco Verticale in Milan and things like that and it looks very attractive from from the outside um, and you know to be fair it is indicative of other sustainable features that this that this building um, has for example it has its own low carbon power plant located below the ground it has a water recycling plant um, as well um, it has this um, sort of I suppose architectural masterpiece this uh, cantilevered heliostat they call it this protruding uh, panel from the roof and it's covered in mirrors and it, it sort of reflects light onto the onto the you know the the, the vines and the bushes which which flow down the building so there is a little bit more to the building from a sustainability perspective than um, only the the aesthetics but if we focus specifically on the vegetation and if, if you're asking me what sort of what sort of purpose does it have um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, from my own observations, it's, 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 it's I mean, I've, I live on the 13th floor. I've spent many an afternoon in front of the big windows, which have all these green vines running down. And I've only ever seen one single bird come and actually utilize any of those vines um, outside my outside my window. So I don't personally believe that it has um, a significant um, impact on, on faunal biodiversity. You know, I think architects, um, you know, and, and the designers of these buildings, they're making a good start. We're seeing more elaborate designs, but I think they're still quite far behind making green buildings true biodiversity hotspots in urban cores, which I think is what some people may like to think they are. But in my opinion, certainly um, in, in the One Central Park case, um, I, d I don't believe that could be considered um, a biodiversity hotspot per se. But I think when we talk about broader values, um, you know, these, these buildings do have value because um, you know, there's, this, and there's an element of novelty to them, um, but it's true that the people that are really benefiting from the building um, in terms of the urban greenery aren't actually the people living inside. So I and my, you know, other rentees and owners are, you know, essentially paying a premium on our rents to live in this building and some of those costs go back to the owner and to the building managers and that pays for the maintenance of this green facade. Um, but the people that are really benefiting are the people walking along the street, looking at this building, taking photographs of it. Um, and arguably, the city of Sydney is, is benefiting from it um, because it's like a flagship. Um, it's a flagship building and you know, it, it helps with their sustainable sustainability image. Um, now, whether these people are, are free riding, um, so that means benefiting without paying, you know, whereas it's the tenants that are paying. I mean, of course, it's possible that the University of, uh, sorry, not the University, the, the City of Sydney, um, you know, allows some sort of subsidies or tax benefits to, to that building or to the, the developer. Um, but overall, uh, for me, that building has an, has an aesthetic value. Um, but it certainly doesn't, in my opinion, regulate microclimates significantly. It doesn't, you know, mitigate climate change significantly, if at all, um, because we're really talking about very, very small um, amounts of vegetation. But as a, as a green focal point within a concrete core, I think, you know, it's, it's at least a, a step in the right direction. And you have done work also in Asia. Uh, what other examples you can name uh, from PES being uh, implemented at the building scale in, in this part of the world? Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Um, I mean, a, a similar example, I suppose, comes not from uh, green buildings, but from green views. So as mentioned, I've spent a bit of time in, in Bangkok and um, in Bangkok there is a large, very large green area called Bangkachau. It's, um, you know, if you look at a map of Bangkok, it's, it's, as, it's as noticeable as Central Park is in Manhattan. Um, and there's a number of condominiums popping up around this big green area and studies have shown, I think, that if you have a green view of Bangkachau, um, you know, the property value is about 5% higher than if you 
don't have a view, even if it's in the same building on the same floor, there's about a 5% increase because of that green view. The problem, of course, is that when someone buys that unit or apartment, um, the money goes to the owner, and then obviously, essentially, that money goes uh, you know, to the building owner, and, and, and that's about it. So the value is generated from Banca Chao, but it's not being worked back into Banca Chao to support the, the land, to support the people that are managing that green space. Um, so again, you could argue that the building owners is, is free riding a little bit. Now, whether that would also be incorporated into the land prices, um, you know, for the land on which that building is constructed, um, even then, you know, if the developer pays, I don't know, the the previous landowner, probably the uh, the city, the city government, um, you know, is that money actually targeted towards towards Banca Chao? I, I, I don't think so. This concludes our episode, Payments for Ecosystem Services in Urban Areas. Thank you for listening. See you next time.